I'm testing now as well. Good looking line. I'm ready to play my like bonus character for the postmortem. <laughs> it's me, Posty, the postmortem character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hope you've got your postmortem character sheets ready, everyone. Is Posty like Dropsy? Um... That's the thing that kills fish. Well, it is, but it's also a video game character. It's a video game character by an Orlando-based developer about a clown that's trying to hug everyone. Oh, it's also a disease that beta fish get. And humans. Oh, I didn't know that. All right, so <laughs> welcome to our medical podcast this week, Dropsy. Now, um, so the postmortem for season three is now, and if you haven't ha- listened to one of these before, basically we just answer listener questions until someone scheduled <laughs> forces them to leave. Usually these go on very long, but I'm going to try. This is my third go around, so maybe I've gotten better at it. Um, we're going to jump right in in just a moment, but before we do, I do want to point out real quick that a new Dungeons & Dragons book was released. <gasps> Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and it has some really cool class uh, and spell stuff in here, and I'm looking through it, and one of the things they've added is a specialization for druids called the Circle of the Shepherd, mm-hmm. and the, the unique gimmick about the Circle of the Shepherd is that they get to, to summon uh, ghostly animal spirits called totems. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, now now I'm going to point out that is a carryover from 4th edition D&D from the Shaman class. Uh, more likely than not. It's one of those things that, like, I know that it's not what it seems, but also the streak of things that Austin uses in Dice Funk that then pop up into other places. Just, it's, it just makes me smile. Yeah, and of course, I didn't come up with the stuff. It's it's from mythology. Are you I... saying you didn't come up with Personas? I did not. I mean, neither did Atlas, really. But it's, it's, a, it's a longer lineage. We've discussed some of that stuff. But let's get into the questions, because I'm sure there are relevant ones. Um, which, I'm just going to start on the top for Twitter, and I'm just going to read through the ones that catch my eye. It's, there's no like process. There's no method to this madness. And I'll try to get to as many as we can. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cosmignon, a beloved artist for the show, uh, asks a favorite wild magic role. I'm a big fan of the one where just money started shooting out of the hands. I, <laughs> I don't know why it sticks in my mind so much, but I just love the idea of money pouring out of someone in, in an economy where money has no real use. I found that weirdly beautiful and it kept sticking with me in my head. It was a little bit of a Chekhov's gun later when you guys needed boat tickets, though. So mm-hmm. It was indeed, but at the time it was just, hooray, money, oh, wait, no. I was also a really big fan of that one. I was like, mine was when you turned into a dragon, Zoe, but <laughs> yep. the problem was that you then later hit one of the other physical transformation ones soon after, and so we didn't get to really savor it. Uh, which is, you know, par for the course with wild magic. And, you know, you win some, you lose some. I enjoyed it, but I wish it would have been a little longer. There's, there's a lot of really good ones. Uh, you know, narratively, the best one was probably the the one that created Claire. Oh, yeah. But uh, just, in, just in terms of uh, goofiness, I, I definitely enjoyed uh, how many of them frequently at the start slowly made Zoe into a Saiyan uh, <laughs> unintentionally. But uh, there's also just the ones that I would have never have thought of in a million years, like shooting maple syrup out of your hands <laughs> or, you know, grow a redwood right underneath you. Just uh, there are a lot of very odd ones out there that perfectly kind of capsulated what my magic should be, which is a complete surprise. I have to say, I completely forgot that Claire was a wild magic consequence. and uh, She just became such an ingrained part of that story. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that that is clearly like the the one that happened. Right. Sure. I mean, that I mean, that's that's easily my 
particular favorite because one, it was like one of those early ones that just sort of kicked things off and it, it completely flipped not only that mission on its head, but then set off a very, it really was what kind of acted as a pivot for Zoe's own character arc throughout the campaign, which was great to see happen. Oh yeah. Zoe was uh, a completely different character because of the fact that Claire existed in the story. I, I don't know how her story would have gone without it, but uh yeah, that was a pretty monumental one just from not only that it existed, but also it happened really early in the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also I also really liked all of the ones that forced you to do things verbally as an actor. <laughs> uh, my favorite still being the one where you had to talk in rhyme, but that was amazing. Oh, I, I'm not a fan of that one myself just because um, it's a very big ask. And it could, I, I felt like it was actually a hard thing for you to pull off, Chris, at least from. The- I mean, it's not the easiest thing for me. I'm not I, I, I don't. Uh, have a mind that easily uh, makes rhymes but uh, you know I think we made it work I think that's the fun of it there were some places where looking back you definitely were like struggling like there were points where it was clear you were standing back from interacting in a couple of scenes because of it but the times where it worked it very much I, I really enjoyed the moments where you sort of really got into it and like you were so snappy on the ball sometimes it felt like you'd sort of been planning in the wings for them <laughs> Yeah, there were points during that uh, period where I was like, I'm going to sit out of this scene, but I'm going to just stand there and think of the lines I'm going to definitely say and think of a way to make a rhyme out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a lot of fun in seeing some of the challenges Wild Magic came up with, uh, mm. like in terms of how to roleplay them. There's some that I don't know if I succeeded on. I mean, there's some that were kind of hard to implement. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Synthesia. Synesthesia. 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 Uh, Zoe got that, and I did come up with what, I want how I want to implement that, but I couldn't think of any natural way to kind of put that into the story that didn't like come off as strange. So it just actually never actively came up. What was your thought for it? Uh, I tried to do some research on it. And one of the things that kind of caught my eye was the idea of having personalities to like things like days of the week. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, So just the idea of like, Oh, it's Tuesday. Tuesday is just kind of a, fucking dork or something like that and then like wednesday's like wednesday's a fucking bro man i love wednesday he's just he's, he's always there for you i realized the other really good wild magic stuff was the times where zoe would um blast rolling with a spell because he pissed her off and then she leveled up and stuff like that that was just like you're welcome that was pretty satisfying yeah, I, people ask a lot of questions about Wild Magic, and we'll probably talk about it more, but one of the very critical things about the way we did it is that basically it was a trust exercise between me and Chris, where I would like give him basically creative writing prompts, like, you know, use rhyming or use synesthesia, and sometimes you got you got on a good run and you ran with it, and sometimes less so, and it's just like, that's the way improv is sometimes, but the uh-huh. important thing is that like I put a lot of onus on you entrusted you to like kind of work with me in the space and i think it worked out very well mm-hmm. the problem is that anyone else trying to recreate that is probably going to end up setting their campaign on fire because <laughs> it is very difficult and i don't recommend it and i don't ever want to do it again because there's a lot of pressure but i'm glad yeah. we did it i enjoyed it it was cool but like yes do as i say not as i do on that one folks Wild Magic uh, sorcerers have existed in D&D for a while, and I've always been intrigued by them, but they've always been pretty bad as a concept. Yeah. Uh, just mechanically speaking, even flavor-wise, they never really had actually, like, really interesting effects that could happen. 
Uh, but when I suggested the idea to Austin, he was so excited for it. <laughs> and uh, this was absolutely this went like above and beyond what I could have hoped for in playing this side of archetype. But exactly as you said, I loved it. It was fantastic. I would never want to do it again, mm-hmm. uh, if only because uh, this was a, a great experience. But yeah, it is. It, it can be uh, a bit uh, disruptive. There's a lot of elements to the campaign that are like that. Like the, all the party splitting was very interesting. It was like very cinematic. People kind of just going off and doing their own thing. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad it exists. It's something special about our show that we pulled it off. But it was also incredibly intensive to have to keep track of all that stuff and have to structure it and keep track of timelines and ask the audience to follow along. And so I'm not eager to do it again. I'm not saying it'll never happen in the history of the show, but I think the next at least one, maybe probably more like parties will be more cohesive, mm. <laughs> uh, ideally. So hopefully. Hopefully. Um, so we got another uh, Cosmignon question here that jumped out to me, which is what happened between Bumbershoot and Max? Is Bumbershoot dead or fused with Max or what? Um, this is a good question because it's going to set up a theme for a lot of my answers vis-a-vis DM stuff, which is it's deliberately ambiguous, which I know is not a satisfying answer, but I wanted to kind of give that joke and that event and stuff some space for people to imagine because there's a couple of different ways it could be it could be you know Bumbershoot is there and is possessed by Max still it could be that because I said it's like Bumbershoot's body so maybe it's actually Max driving or maybe Max is passed on and it's just Bumbershoot there's a lot of different ways to interpret that and I don't think the specific answer is actually all that interesting it just wasn't worth like sitting down and hashing out the details of that particularly um the only thing that I thought was interesting was just making it intentional that he was the last thing to come out of the mirrors, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think there are, like, potential questions that roll on if you answer that. Like, if you say, oh, Bumbershoot is in control when coming out of the mirror, then that leads on to, like, oh, is Bumbershoot going to be mad about what happened to Danto? What does that mean for him going off to other people from the epilogue? And there's... There's all these things that you then have to answer lots of other questions afterwards, and I I tend to agree with you, Austin, that I think that question is more interesting left open. Yeah, uh, someone asked me in the Discord, um, you know, would Roland be worried about uh, uh, Bumbershoot going after him? And I'm like, no. Um, have you seen how stupidly overpowered Paladins are, and by proxy, Roland? I mean, Leon was deliberately playing Bumbershoot as someone with no sense of self-preservation yeah, exactly. on, on like a meta level. He was like basically just like, how disruptive can I be before I get killed? Which is this whole thing. So like, as much as I love Leon and I do another show with him, for those who don't know, like we still record every week. We're fine as friends and everything. But like, I'm not, I wasn't sad to see the character go because the joke was good, but that's all there was to it was the one joke. Mm-hmm. And so I think the show totally benefited from the way that turned out, even though it was personally stressful for me to have everything shaken up like that. I think the story benefited. So I think everything that can be said about Leon and Bumbershoot has been said on this podcast or the other one I do with him. Um, But I, I, I assume I'm going to keep getting questions about that until my dying day because everyone loves Leon. Next question. uh, Aline asks, was Stellarosa planned to be the cause of the wild magic from the beginning of the season? Uh, no, not at all. I I wrote Stella Rosa as like a character in the backstory, but did not actually like have any definitive like uh, desire to have her in the game. It was sort of like she's there in the backstory and uh, basically just there for the, the joke of Zoe's character as the 
you know, the untalented sister of this super awesome Mary Sue. So I just I figured maybe Stella Rosa would appear in the story, but I had no actual plans for her having a point in anything. Yeah, actually, the way Stella Rosa became more prominent was when Zoe resolved herself to kind of fight Lady Nim or at least get her true name and like resolve that situation. I said to Chris, there's a very, very real chance if you fight Nim, you will die. Like the math is just bad. She is a final boss. You are one character. And in fact, if you listen to the episode, I think 22 or so when it went down, the attack she made against you would have killed you in one shot if Roland hadn't stepped in front. So that danger was fucking real. And so we we actually said off screen, like, if Zoe dies and it is likely that's going to happen, what are you going to do? And Chris was like, oh, I don't know if I just make a new character. Can I play as somebody else who's established, basically? And I said, well, we should give that person, I think we determined it was probably should be Stellarosa, some camera time first, which is why she started appearing in the cold opens so that if Zoe died, mm. she wouldn't come out of nowhere. You get the sense that she was already part of the events. Um, so that, that, that's Stellarosa really was always in the background, but her becoming like a really integral part was because meta wise, Zoe was probably going to die and almost did. And then when she didn't, I was like, oh, we've already established this character. Let's bring her, her in. And uh, I, I think it was my idea that she was behind the wild magic, but it was at that point, like 20 something episodes in that it just, I mean, it all worked together pretty well. I thought like it all, it all feels natural, but I wasn't like, I never set out to like uncover the mystery of Zoe's wild magic necessarily. No, I think that was actually, this is something I think we talked about before the game even happened when uh, we were still kind of like creating characters, but I remember having a discussion with you as to whether or not we should give a a cause behind the wild magic or just leave it as simply a, a random thing that existed, like whether a god of madness or something like that could be behind it or something like that. And it was, I think we just decided, it was like, hey, it's better leaving it kind of just as is. Um, but I think it worked a lot better when we we had sort of uh, character reasons to connect the two then. Yeah. I mean, that's just a pretty basic writing technique is to, cons- you know, conservation of detail, shrunken white, omit needless words, don't establish something if you don't need to, don't overwhelm the audience with details and jargon and stuff, um, which I know frustrates some of the listeners who are like really into the lore. And I got a lot of questions about like, how does the orb on top of the tower work? Like, can I see a schematic of it? And it's like, it's just a magic orb. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, especially when talking to people about like what the nature of magic is, it's like basically string theory and it's in everything literally. And so there's a lot of stuff you can literally hand wave away in terms of how something works because it's just magic, right? It's just the way that it's influencing the weave. You don't need to diagram that interaction. It's just there's just enough abstraction in there for just to be a thing. So, and even if there are explanations in lore and like fantasy fiction, they're often like not actually workable or contradictory. Like different versions of Dungeons and Dragons have different rules for the same things, and you just like absolutely at some point it's literally not worth the extra effort to get into it. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I try to do on this show is like only say things you need. Like I never said the name of the God of winter. Cause it just wasn't important. <laughs> like there's like a bunch of stuff like that. Like I could have gotten like deep in the paint on like a ton of different stuff. And I tried to uh, not overwhelm people and it probably still failed. I still get questions about stuff that was established on this show. Part of Leon's whole thing was that he literally just couldn't keep like details straight and you know it's hard it's a, this, this is a difficult art form that we are using so uh 
you know? Luckily, I think I've, we've cultivated a pretty literate audience, so we do our best. Um, there was another one. Now, here we go. Aline also asked, favorite moment for your characters? Throwing light in the mirror. That was my fave. Yeah, I mean, that's the fucking banger right there. Like, you, I mean, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but you had, like, an actual panic attack at that point in the recording. Oh, yeah, I was, I was like, seriously, like, anxiety attack during that recording. It was just, like, such a big, huge shift, and, like, everything changed at that point, and it was a lot of pressure. I didn't think it was going to work, either. I thought I was dead. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I, have, I was supposed to do the thing, and now I'm dead. And, well, the thing is... This is like yet another case of you out lawyering uh, Austin, which is always a fun payoff to see happen, which <laughs> I mean, how many times has this happened now between the two seasons? I encourage that kind of stuff, right? Like if we wanted to just bump numbers into each other, like that's what video games are. And that's fine. I love video games. I used to play them for a living. They're great. Fire Emblem. That's a cool strategy game where you bump numbers into each other. But the cool thing about tabletop is that you can just get like get fucking weird with it, right? Like just... Uh, on that on that same note, my favorite moment wasn't really a Roland moment, was reminding Austin that I knew that Lawrence that Valtari had speak with dead. I'm like, well, you got a corpse in front of me, and you told me it's not undead. Therefore, mm-hmm. and that because that basically shifted so much of the weight of the campaign, and also made for probably the four hardest sessions for me to play as. Um, which is why I'm so glad I'm not going to play a Roland type character ever again. <laughs> not like just I'm done with that shit. Yeah. I mean, that's a thankless job being the straight man, right? Because everyone loves the wacky characters, but you need to ground them by contrasting with a, a relatively normal person. And that's usually your role sketch, which I feel like, you know, so- sometimes you want to be the center of attention and it can be kind of a bummer for you to be overlooked, but like you're drastically important to every season you're in but it's not the most glamorous I, and i'm not going to be departing from that role entirely next season either so i'm i'm resigned to that position which is fine but but it's not so much being the straight man it's being a devoutly lawful good religious character <laughs> with a deep sense of being a failure in his background and having to pin down that emotion to make it work in the performance so fun times there oh yeah that just reminded me that the the favorite character poll uh veltari won 36 percent uh seven percent behind zoe seven percent behind that theodora and then a couple more behind that roland um also the forums did a separate poll I guess to to segment the the, the social media disparity between us, and I think Theodora uh, and Zoe tied on that one. Yep. So I think every character was pretty beloved. In the like first season, it was like either you were a Ronaldo person or you were an Anne person. And in season two, it was like, do you love Violet or do you hate Violet? And the hate Violet split across the other characters. But this season, I feel like everyone was kind of beloved. So I think this season, everyone like had a very definitive like thing that they really did well in the party and I I love that everyone like had their thing and that everyone felt vital to the story like it wouldn't have been this story without all all of the people we had <laughs> um so favorite moments for Zoe or Veltari uh favorite moments for me like I have I have two I would say there was the one that always sticks in my mind for like early arc Veltari was the moment that she deceived Wolf into thinking that she was Garrick. Mm. 
Um, I I love that moment of just like, no, I am everyone now. I'm I'm Garrick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. I think it was like the height of like fun, silly, light-hearted deception, Valdari. Um, but like just just being a bit more serious, like the the whole couple of episodes of arc that were just like Roland forgiving Valtari through to like like Valtari having her arc of I'm gonna try and be less of a shitty person. I remember recording those episodes, and there were a couple of points that just like. I did not expect it to get as real as it got, and I had a bit of a cry while recording those, and I felt really like good about how they turned out. But I, I felt very happy with those sort of like episodes of "Hey, Valtari's having an arc," but they were also like kind of hard to record at times. Yeah, I think it's underestimated how much goes into recording this. Like, mm. it's one thing to be like, you know, my job's hard. I talk on the internet, but like, it actually does take both a lot of preparation to like learn all the rules and be good at writing which some of us are like professional media critics so like maybe we have a little advantage there but then it's like then you have to be good at voice acting you have to be good at comedy mm. you have to be willing to put yourself out in what is otherwise kind of an embarrassing like <laughs> oh, i'm an elf everybody buy this performance it's like it actually is pretty tough and we've had yeah. like people on the show like i said panic attacks people have been reduced to tears we've had people who quit the show because it was too stressful and I, I mean i've done harder jobs in my life i just want to say if you if you don't know i think it's important for people to realize that like there this is actually kind of difficult yeah like i i think i've said this to you guys off of recording but i kind of want to say it on recording um is i'm someone that like really struggles with with coming up with narrative and sort of like imaginative narrative storytelling it's just a thing my brain's never really been good at and I found it very tough to do this season but I feel so rewarded with how the season's turned out like this is the most proud by far I've ever been of anything I've tried to do that's involved coming up with narrative and there were definitely parts of it that I was just like I can draw from something that's a bit real to hopefully make this performance seem a bit more real. And, you know, that can be tough sometimes to do, like drawing from stuff that feels real to, you know, do a performance. But I'm really glad how this season turned out. Woo. Yay. <laughs> I think I my favorite moment for Zoe probably would be her going to the rocks and giving them that mask for Robin. Uh, one, I was glad I thought of it, even though it probably took me way longer than I should have. I don't think I saw anyone, even like in the audience, like figure out that that was supposed to be kind of more obvious. We'll talk about that stuff later, but it, it seems glaringly obvious in retrospect, but uh, it was something I was very glad because it really captured, I think, what I wanted to go for with Zoe and her trying to mm. come to the realization that she just wants to help the people in this town. And it was a very tangible way to show she's doing that and has solved a problem even for somebody who she was you know on opposite sides of that giant x-man charging scene with <laughs> so yeah i like that i like that how that came all how that all came together everyone's character arcs were amazing right zoe's was very very good i loved it i adored it veltari's obviously super drastic and cool and stuff and it's like every time i think i have a favorite i'm reminded of something else like that scene and it's like <laughs> yeah. oh man it's so hard to pick i love them all of all of our dumb idiot children I, I, i've maintained that roland had probably the least arc of the characters but his arc was just more about him having to basically question his own conviction against the rest of the world basically it well 
I I think on top of that, like he was a catalyst for many of the other arcs that happened. Like a lot of the arcs that occurred wouldn't have happened without a bit of a Roland push. Mm-hmm. I I think a lot of the character work for Roland is metatextual and like the way you subverted the way paladins are played in a lot of D or the way religious people are portrayed in fiction yeah i think it's 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 easy to underwrite that and not appreciate it but like avoiding the the lawful stupid mm-hmm. and like the self-righteous jackass right and like being understanding and flexible and all that kind of stuff it, it was nice to see you put up against an actual angel and like <laughs> to not just be like hey yeah you're an angel sure yes religion religious type of course outside with the angel you were like right you were a lawful good character who was still willing to like argue with essentially like here is your lawful good magical being like nah I disagree with you I have my own moral thoughts right and and basically part of it is and I've said this before it's like I wanted to play him as essentially uncorruptible which may seem kind of uh sort of a a an easy out for me but it's like it's hard trying to play a character. <laughs> And have a character who refuses to allow themselves to fall in that way. And that's partly where the difficulty came from. You know, I remember in particular the scene where uh, Veltari was trying to convince Roland that he owed her. And <laughs> I was I was pissed off when you said that. That's, that came through <laughs> my performance um, with Roland because he was just like, no, I, I don't owe you anything. You know, but so. like that... It, it- Roland ended up being a really nice analog for Dora in that like it was nice to have on opposite ends of the scale a character who was like very firm in their conviction and knew exactly what they were going to do and to and again to credit Lauren all as as much as I possibly can um <laughs> because I I it's hard for me to put it into words what you had to put yourself through to play as Dora this season is crazy because the to stick to that character and to stick to that whole process um, was crazy to see and, and really led to a, I think, a really satisfying peak and conclusion overall. It was hard because me as a human. <laughs> yeah. I was so sad. I couldn't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to play a character like that. Sorry, folks who want to see that for me. I'm not going to do it. We got a lot of Theodora questions. I'm going to try to get to as many as possible. Uh, so... Next question right now, uh, Matthew B. Hare asks, is the afterlife still present? Um, this is a pretty easy lore question. Yes, uh, the fundamental like structure of the universe hasn't changed. I think the easy analog to our world is like Christians don't believe heaven disappeared when Christ died, right? Like, mm-hmm. So that that's just how I would put it. Like, yeah, the, a bunch of dudes died, but the world is still basically functionally the same. Uh, so easy question right there. Uh, Joe Saputo asks, had Warden like killed Theodora? Would the campaign have ended after the Danto fight or did you have something else planned? Uh, once again, kind of an Austin question. Planning is <laughs> never quite the word. If you're a longtime listener, you know that my DM notes consist basically of names of stuff. And then we just kind of soft shoe through. Um, so the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> the longer answer is probably not that I don't think it would have been satisfying to end at the Danto fight. It probably would have mm. continued and probably would have involved Gonador trying to exact revenge on Ilium. He probably would have basically 
mustered his own sort of force and we would have had a similar kind of showdown between the forces of Ganador and the party, but without Theodora's involvement. And I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. It's hard to do DMing the way I do it. And I realize that it's not, it's not optimal and it's not smart. Like there's a part that I still can't believe I got away with, which was when I rolled for a tarot reading, which was so fucking irresponsible. It was I can't believe I did it, and I uh, even more so can't believe it worked out. Like, that was a poor decision. <laughs> I just like how you just, just blatantly say, like, I shouldn't have done that, and somehow it worked. It, it was dumb. It was so fucking dumb, and it worked. Well, it, it's a, it's, it, it reminds me of how some of the dragon chess scenes also panned out, because, like, the way that we had it, it just seemed to narratively pan out well in terms of how the results were. Um Despite the fact that from a narrative standpoint, we shouldn't have just like, shouldn't just leave it to the dice to tell us how the scene should play out, but it worked. Yeah. I, I make a lot of inadvisable decisions. All I can really say for myself in my defense is that I spent like 26 years cultivating writing skills. And so I've left myself kind of a cushion of that skill set to fall back on. And I hope it works for everybody, but I... This is my style, and I also just want to give people freedom to kind of explore the space without feeling like I've written, like, here's my novel. Could you guys put jokes in it? <laughs> like, that's not the show I want to do. So it's worked out so far. I've escaped for two seasons now in this role, so we'll see. Uh, a related question, Florian asks, if Lauren could have had any ending she wanted for Dora, what would that have looked like? I mean, like, ideally, Dora could have, like, in, in an ideal world, Dora would have gotten what she wanted and fixed everything and been, like, a cool anti-hero. But, uh, nah, and, you know, got off into the wild with the rocks and Mr. Smooches. Yeah, I, I wanted Dora to be happy. Like, I, I was sad she died. Like, I knew she was going to die because there was no way. But I, I was kind of attached to her and I wanted her to be happy. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a bummer. And I'm a little bummed I didn't get to kill any of you all. I mean, like, it's good that I didn't, but I really wanted to kill somebody. We have a question about the mechanics of that fight I want to get to. So uh, we will return to that subject. But I do think there's a running theme of people in D Dice Funk who die and who are objectively fucking terrible people. But are, we are still sad about it. Like one of the most, uh, like, controversial decisions to kill one of the characters in season two is like even me she's my twitter avatar like i love her dearly but she spent hundreds of years feeding live people to spiders and she was killed while trying to enslave people like she's just literally objectively fucking awful and everyone was super sad when she died and i feel like dora is a lot of that too where it's like yeah she murdered a ton of people including children she didn't really feel bad about it she lied and she did just the worst stuff and it's like oh man i wish she could have just chilled with that turtle some more <laughs> Human brains are weird, right? Yeah. It's it's one of those things that stood out to me about the way you played Dora that I think like really cemented where that character was going was that moment where Dora was presented that decision of basically gonna adore all the rocks. And there there was no way like and I know people were like, "Oh, maybe she'll do it," but there's there was no justification I ever could have made. Like and up to that point I Looking at the character from the outside, I was like, oh, you know, she'll pick the rocks, you know, that's... And looking back on it, it makes so much sense. It's like, no, everything that Dora did was about Gany. That's just how it was and how it was going to be. And I think... I have to say, like, I'm really proud of you for making that character choice. Aww. Like, I... It's just, like, having the option of, like, 
oh, here's the, I guess, almost like the get out route of, do you want Dora to have a happy ending? There might be a route for it here. And going, no, the character that I have wouldn't do that and going with it. And, like, I don't know how that was for you to play, but, like, I think it was... Looking back, I think it was the most interesting and telling choice about Dora, is, like, that was the thing that cemented who... It reflavored like, every episode before that, I think. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I hope that waffling made some sense. (laughs) No, it did make sense. No, no, it did. And thank you. I I felt the same way in terms of, like, when those things happen later on, you can look back at earlier moments you're like, oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> there is something more to this, you know? Yeah, she was incredibly consistent with that characterization. And I think it's actually, that's a great way, just in writing in general, quick writing tip, is to like hide plot stuff in comedy because people easily kind of write it off. So all of her early sociopathy, we all were like, ah, Dora's wacky. But then like later you're like, oh, she there's something wrong with this person. And that it, it was just really well played that you let it creep up on you until it was too late. <laughs> um, but yeah, also just the way that Lauren played her character really with, with a clear goal and with conviction. And like, if her, if her goal was to win, all she had to do was be like, I renounce Ganny, you guys forgive me. Right. And then you would be on the winning team. Winning's easy, but sticking to your character changed all of the things around you. Like, the, the Rocks especially, they were the antagonists of, like, the first arc. Mm. Like, my plan was the first two, quote-unquote, missions were basically just easy retrieval missions. There was no, like, stakes except for the Rocks would kept, keep trying to hinder you. And eventually that would become, like, a boss fight, like a violent showdown between these people who keep cock-blocking you. But because <laughs> you seduced them, like, nothing ever came of that. They just became allies, and they, they were, the, like, they're the starter boss, you know? They're, they were the, the culmination of, like, the first third of the campaign, basically. The second was Garrick, and the third was either Nim or Light. That's the structure of this damn thing. But you're like, mm, let me get a piece of that, though. And then I was just like, that's different now. It's just different. <laughs> so... Yeah, Theodore is great, and I think it's a really cool testament to just allowing players to go after what interests them. Because I could have just been like, stop that. <laughs> Knock that off. Go investigate the zombies. That's what I wrote for you. But you didn't care, and she didn't care, and I thought that was great. <laughs> um, so, a next question, Matthew B. Hare, another lore one. How did your plans for next season change with the death of the gods? Uh, not really. I think that most of it will be kind of uh, flavor rather than function. Um, we got questions about some of that stuff we'll get to later, but my plans for season four are mostly character and theme based. There are like ideas I want to explore and characters I want to put in front of you guys, but everything around that is just jokes <laughs> and like math. Like none of, none of that stuff couldn't survive a, a change of setting. So actually very little. And um, that's intentional because if you guys had been pro tower and all four of you had said let's leave this up then the gods wouldn't have died and then that would be the state of the universe so i had to have that flexibility oops no <laughs> you did a great loved it oh here's a good one um <laughs> giving nuts on twitter cool name uh whatever happened to the rocks after the final battle and did they mourn for theodora uh this is actually surprisingly a chris question because you're the mcquare <laughs> Did Zoe extradite the rocks or did she protect them? No, Zoe protected the rocks. Uh, she wouldn't. She didn't send anybody out to to get screwed over. Ilium was a safe place for them. 
All right, then that's what happened to them. They were perfectly happy, and um, they did more for Theodora on some level. They liked her. I think they also had, you know, complicated ex-lover feelings about her because she did do a lot of fucked up shit. But they, they, their, their like for Dora was genuine. I don't know if I'm ever going to get another moment to talk about this. So real quick on the rocks, uh, a really interesting character <laughs> turn for them. They were kind of supposed to be like your rival group, and then they kind of became love interests, and then kind of like. Team Rocket, basically, just fucking around in the background. They were actually originally written for season two. Oh. Uh, the Rocks, as as a as a bounty hunting group that would go after the party because you guys stole a boat, um, and they were trying to hunt you down. It never really worked out though, um, because just there was so much going on, they didn't fit. And um, so when I adapted them into season three, first of all, they shrunk. Originally, they were a company called the Rocks, like the Rock Bounty Hunting Company. There was more of them. I changed it to a couple just to fit the thing better. But the joke with their name, because every season has like a naming thing and season two, everything was music based and rock nation is a record label Mm -hmm. uh, started by Jay Z and everyone in the company was named after a band on that record label. And so when I pared it down to just two people in season three, some of that came over. Claudia is Claudio Sanchez. Anybody? Kate and Cambria. Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad we share so much taste. Yep. Coheed and Cambria, uh, gender swapped uh, Claudio Sanchez and uh, Robin. It's Rihanna. Is <laughs> Robin is the birth name of Rihanna. So that's what's going on there. Um, there are more. Actually, Claire Elise was uh, another member of the Rocks in season two, if they had showed up. Uh, Claire Elise is the birth name of uh, Grimes. She's good. Um, so I reused that name because I had grown attached to it for the creatures pre- previously known as Wazoe. You mean Wazoe wasn't a musical reference? <laughs> no. Hmm. So let me look for more questions. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, Mobile Suit Crossbone Panda. Fuck, that's amazing. Asks, this one is directed towards Lauren. Did you purposely play Dora as a direct contrast to Vinny? Yes, 100%. I wanted to prove what I could do. For those who haven't listened to season two, Lavinia, your character there, was a pacifist who basically spent every single moment uh, trying to get people to stop fighting. <laughs> and this this time you were the villain. I had played Vinny a little close to my own personality, but like really extreme because it was my first time role playing. So I was like, oh, let's be careful. And so coming into this season, I was like, I need to be different because I wanted to prove to myself that I could. A good role-playing challenge for you, but also an important thing about this show is for each season to contrast in ways. I've talked about this before, but like season one was all humans, basically, and very little magic. Season two was like monster races, quote-unquote, and more magic. Season three was immortals and high magic. And season four is going to be something else. And we have other like things that contrast, like season one was fire and earth and season two was wind and water and no one figured out what season three was does anyone want to take a guess light and darkness that's not a bad uh guess and i think if you like wrote that for an essay and you could support it that'd be fine it's not what i had in mind not authorial intent but feel free to dis you know disagree and have your own take but it's a it's another classic element from a certain system oh ghost and poison types got it Nailed it. It's all ghastly. It's a very good joke. Uh, no. So uh, f- so most systems uh, have fire, earth, water, wind. Uh, one has an additional one, which is the system used in Wicca, 
Uh, and the fifth element in Wicca is spirit. Oh. A lot of ghosts, a lot of things from other, you know, planes and so forth. That was what I was going for. Dark and light kind of works. Well, I don't want to get into the metaphysical stuff yet. <laughs> There's so much. I did so much fucking self-congratulatory, masturbatory religion shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. So here, here's another one of the mechanic things. Josephina Vineyard asks, are all the spells and game mechanics that reference gods and afterlife no longer working? What do they do? What's up with that? Um, <clears throat> so we'll explore that in season four, definitely. And so uh, because every season needs to be self-contained i'm gonna have to give this whole spiel again in like a week so i don't want to do too much now but uh i think we're all smart uh creative people and we can effectively reflavor things um the forms still exist in the world and people will make do so i'm gonna i'm gonna give like this whole speech next week but in the old days if you wanted to throw a lightning bolt you would pray to the god of lightning and he would give it to you and in the future, you just channel capital L lightning. This is why it's important to understand the specific context of the campaign's own systems, because if you were to look at this from a Forgotten Realms angle, which I don't necessarily recommend because it's kind of boring, um, <laughs> they are the, the Forgotten Realms argument says that paladins don't get their powers or magic from the gods, but by the, the conviction of their oaths themselves, which mm. seems counterintuitive to like them being tied to deities and stuff but that's what it says in the book but yeah tech, that's why they're charisma based because they're actualizing their intent mm-hmm. of like their religion and listen at a certain point we get to say how things work and so I'm, I'm fine with fudging a little bit of it but i actually do think the kind of lore and the, the stuff we've built here hangs together yeah. i don't think you even need to get into hand waving i think if i may say so we're doing a pretty good job so some of that you're gonna have to wait until next season, but trust me is what I'll have to say. Um, <laughs> Princess Snowin asks, were Bumber shoot and Danto doing it? <laughs> um, so in season one, Leon played a bisexual character. And then I think he, I don't know if he said this on podcast. I think he may have said that on another one. He later said he should have just been gay and that, he regretted that about Ronaldo and he was going to do differently for season three. And so if it wasn't clear, Bumbershoot is gay. That is a hundred percent the intent behind that from Leon's perspective. And I honored that uh, Bumbershoot was definitely gay. And the extent to which Bumbershoot and Danto were like serious about the relationship is, is not entirely clear, but they were together in, in such a way that Danto was able to literally walk into Bumbershoot's ancestral home and say like, this is mine. And legally it was. If you listen to the one of the opening, the cold opens, they talk about how like he got the paperwork through. Like Akamoros recognized that he was like the proper patriarch of the house because of his relationship with Bumbershoot. So, I mean, you guys found rings in Bumbershoot's room too. Like I, I didn't actually think it was that ambiguous, but yes, Bumbershoot and Danto were together in some form. I thought it was pretty clear. I thought it was clear. Uh, Toshirakuru asked, Chris, what was Stella Rosa's Sphinx stand name? Oh, I had this too, but since uh, we finished the episodes without naming it, I uh, I think I got rid of it. I had like a whole list of crappy names that I was going to give. Uh, I think Simple Minds was on there. Uh, Muse. Walk like an Egyptian. 
Yeah, walk like an Egyptian. That was it. That's very good. Some people in Discord asked like what Mardis's was. I, uh, I I think I suggested maybe not on air, but the idea was foreigner. That is good. That's a plane shifter for the for the ice wolf in particular. Yes. So, at the risk of tooting my own horn, I really like the way the totems worked out because I think they easily easily could have either been not important at all or like consumed the campaign and become what it was about and that would have felt kind of like too derivative of the other franchises i kind of invoked there i think we got it just the right level where each one got a moment to shine but they never were the full focus so i mean roland saving zoe's life and fighting theodora theodora being unambushable really changed that whole dynamic for that arc Zoe uh, melting the chains, which literally changed so much. Like if she wouldn't have done that, I I have no idea what would have happened with Grace. Like so, so crucial. And of course, Veltari using the the Manticore to uh, intimidate a couple different people at at key moments. Like everyone got a good moment and they were cool, but it never became like, hey guys, you want to just do a JoJo RP? I mean, yes. Let's do it. I mean, <laughs> yes, we would. That would be alienating for a lot of people, but uh, I I liked them there as a thing for flavor that like yeah. had some function but weren't overpowered. But we could use now and then to be like, hey, here's a cool bit of flavor, and we d- succeeded at a thing. Now go away back to the background. <laughs> yeah, and they did. Help, they helped um, characterize people too, because I feel like it gave you a better idea of like who Penny was, like small but dangerous with if messed with because she had a scorpion and stuff like that just like little things yeah and and roland only used the uh the main feature of the griffin three times once for each of the three other characters uh toshira kuru also asks why is aurora specifically female i was of the impression that so there's names for everybody so it's guilt was called aurora hunger was called gorfanax and sacrifice was called zavala for previous seasons uh they were without gender is there a reason that changed if that's the case um so here's my thing which is none of them have gender unless like literally the, the form of gender i guess would have gender maybe or maleness i don't know it's who knows like uh everything has a form if it's a concept it has a form that's how like plato's theory works so like Grass has a form, hunger has a form, tiredness has a form, water bottles have a form, like everything does if it's a concept. So things that aren't inherently gendered, am I making any sense? Like here, here's here's what actually happened. It was in season two. I said Zavala was speaking with both a male and female voice simultaneously, but then I kept accidentally gendering him by saying like he says he does and then i kept correcting myself on air saying it's not a he it's not a he but it was too late i had already planted that in people Mm. so i wanted to i wanted to avoid the implication that all of the powers that control the universe were male and so it was important to me that also one of them could present as female even though none of them are gendered by by nature the the reading i got as a player and like this may well have just been me like explaining it away in my head is like Guilt is not a thing that typically has to manifest in a physical form in any regard. And like my reading on it was just like, this is the party's attempt to make sense of the unfathomableness of guilt crammed into a person. And as such, probably don't read too much into what you're seeing or hearing being an accurate 
version of this unknowable guilt thing. Yeah. So, like, I just didn't read too much into the gendering. I just assumed it was mortals trying to wrap their head around the the sheer reality of guilt. Yeah, guilt could have appeared to you guys as a pink elephant. It could have been a big dildo. It could have been anything. There's no reason for it to appear in any particular way. And the way that they have worked so far in other seasons is like Gorfanax slash hunger was just this force that people sacrificed things to. They thought it was a demon. And then someone put it in to stone. They like, they, they basically embodied it. They, they gave it a body. And in season two, there was discussed that Zavala didn't have a form and you guys could have given it a body. That was one of the ways the season could have ended is you putting it in a body and fighting it. And so like, none of these things have a shape necessarily unless you're talking about like the concept of shapes maybe like that it's it's gonna get pretty theoretical at a certain point right the concept of cube and it has a cube-like shape exactly it's inherently abstract because we're talking about platonic forms which are inherently like pure and almost inconceivable in an actual manner because it's beyond our ability to perceive so yeah, it's important for them to have a kind of alien aspect to them to distinguish them for gods. Because if they were just like people walking around and being powerful, they would be basically interchangeable. And it's important to me for this part of the world building to make sense is that you get the feeling that they're beyond that. And so I realized that it it can sometimes kind of seem like a slippery thing to get your head around. And it's, I think it, season four will help because everyone will know. It's not something that you guys are going to discover halfway through and then have to explain to you in bits and pieces. It's just like a fact of the universe. And maybe that'll clear things up. But so the the question was, do these things have gender? Probably not. Not, ne- not necessarily is the answer. Um, and I mostly use that as a narrative device because we as humans making and listening to this podcast uh, perceive the world in certain limited ways. And so that's the answer to that question. Uh, last Toshirakuru question, nailing it, just just killing it with all the questions this week. Uh, did it feel odd to not have a, a direct betrayal or total par- total party kill occur this season, or were those tropes you were trying to avoid? Someone in the community beat me to this joke, but we did have a TPK this season, and we've had one every season. It's just instead of total party kill this season, it was a total pantheon kill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, but the thing to, to note is, sorry, I guess this is spoilers for the first two seasons. I hope no one started here and is now sad that I've ruined it. But season one was beyond my control, both because I wasn't DM and also because literally my character was not involved in the events at all. It was another person who did everything. Uh, so I had that's just beyond my capacity to artistically contribute. Season two, basically what it came down to was I said, how do you guys want this to end? And there was a couple of different solutions that were brought up and one was picked again, kind of beyond my control. And we talked about that in the season two postmortem. So it's never really been a thing that was my goal. I've never been like, I'm going to write a downer ending. It, that feels like I'm like passing the buck or trying to like cop out. I'm not like it is, it is my product at the end of the day. And I guess I could have tried to prevent it, but I'm, I, I don't have a preference one way or the other. My interest is characters with relatable, consistent, personalities interacting (laughs) like that's all i care about how it ends is you know interesting but i don't have a preference i i feel like there there totally was a way that could have ended up happening and had that been the end i'd have been fascinated to see what that 
would have left for Fedora. Like, I don't think that, like, was an ending that we had to avoid, because I think there were definitely interesting things that could have come out of a total party kill. Although I was not... I had not planned Fedora to survive that fight, so... Alright, so... I want to find this question because I had someone ask. Yeah, here it was. Uh, Lady Misfit asks, I must, I might be biased as I really liked her and felt she was undermined a bit too much, but was there ever a chance of Dora winning and what would have happened then? So I, I do want to address this because this happened a couple times. People saying basically that the final fight wasn't balanced, quote unquote. And I have a couple different responses to that. One is that narratives aren't really about balance like when don corleone gets machine gunned in the godfather like it's still a good movie even though that fight wasn't balanced right? <laughs> like s- stuff happens but also everything that happened to dora was a natural extension of her choices you chose to let the stalker live so it jumped you right you chose to follow gonador blindly into a trap like those things are natural and if i had like reached in to the campaign and being like well i have to make this fair so i'm gonna penalize roland or like give you extra buffs or something right i don't think that would have been satisfying but the question is did dora have a chance of winning and the answer is not only yes but yes easily if somebody else had played that character probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah so here's a couple just off the top of my head if the goal for dora was to win and they'll say I was in control of her or Lauren, you were differently motivated. You want to win this fight. Here's the things you do. You kill the stalker at the first opportunity. You don't blow a spell slot on sending. Yeah. You hit Zoe anytime she tries to cast haste. So she loses concentration. You break the bars of the cage to let the petitioners in to swarm Veltari. You turn into mist and try to run if it's looking bad. You could have made oh, yeah. dozens of tactical decisions and you could have won that fight. Not only... In a, in a possible world, but I think pretty easily if you had more creativity. Uh, that sounds judgy. I'm saying you played your character perfectly, and that's what I want from you. I don't want you to win fights. I want you to do what Dora would do, and you nailed it. Oh yeah, no, like I, if I was, uh, I guess better at D and D. So if I was controlling Dora, and for whatever reason, maybe this is just the character that I've built, and I want to win. It's important to me that I win this fight. Here's what I do. Turn one. I hit Zoe with Blight. Blight does 8d8 damage. Zoe has 49 health. She probably goes to zero. If not, next turn I Blight her again. I knock Zoe down the first thing because she has the lowest health. Then I say, Dora puts her staff to Zoe's head and says... Drop your weapons or I blow her fucking head off. I'm not fucking around. I have nothing else to live for. Don't try me. There you go. You just won. Mm -hmm. You just won. It's over. The thing I thought was interesting during that fight was, and correct me, like, if if I got a read on this wrong, Lauren, but, like, the read I got on Dora as a character in that fight was that... She wanted to succeed because that's what Gonador wanted, but that she didn't necessarily have any honest feelings of yes i need to kill that person and i want them dead and they need to be dead and i'm gonna kill them that it was sort of i'm doing it because i have to almost oh yeah for sure and also we never established theodora as like a, a sun zoo right like you kill yeah. people mostly by accident like <laughs> you're not a tactical thinker and neither is Lauren. D- Dora wasn't there with, like, <laughs> bloodlust or, like, I need to win to get my revenge. Like, there wasn't a, a thing that was driving to be like, I have to kill you right now. No, and honestly, like, I, like, I feel like the way it ended for Dora, because she didn't win the fight, is 
that was kind of what I had in as my intention, like the whole time. Dealing with Roland, Roland, all he has is damage and defense on his side. He doesn't have the ability to manipulate and control the fight. So once he was hasted up, it was just like, okay, I have to blow everything I have as fast as I can. And if it doesn't work, I'm dead, pretty much. If Theodora was at all able to disrupt the haste and stuff like that, I think she probably would have killed at least one character. I, that mm-hmm. The way it turned out was one thing, and I liked it. I, I have no regrets about the way that turned out. But it was never a predetermined outcome. Like, everything was on the table, and it always is on the table in the show. That's important to me. Even, like, the... The suggestion that I'm railroading keeps me up at night, <laughs> so it's it's very important to me that everyone understand that. I hope it I hope it came through. Yeah, it was more of a, like a choice that I made. Also, I just think if you if you think about it structurally, the combat quote unquote was only half of the final boss fight. I'm using air quotes; so no one can see this. Really, the second part was the puzzle about what to do after you had zero HP. Which I understand the way that it, that came off in the recording it seemed like I was like leading a little bit but actually laura sent me a message before we started recording asking if planar binding worked on dora because she was a fae yeah it was it was your idea i was just signaling you that it was your idea time that that, there was a conversation that me and austin had probably two or three weeks before the end of the show that was like i can see that this is heading towards a dora fight i never got my chance to use planar binding it was going to be this big thing can i use it on dora and we had a bit of a conversation back and forth of if we do get to a point in that fight where I can use planar binding, this is what I'm probably going to use it on. And I'm pretty sure two or three weeks in advance we had said, like, if the opportunity comes up, I'm probably going to try and have Dora kill Gonador. Should that be an option? And I think that was just Austin doing the, like, okay, I know that this is what you're thinking. Here's your chance if you still want to do what we talked about. Yeah, so full credit to you. That was your idea totally. I had no idea about any other way that was going to turn out. I do want to say one thing about the the very ending, though, which is, I mean, I work a lot in ambiguity and implication because of my pretentious ass, <laughs> but uh, there was something that I think maybe wasn't clear enough, and I could have explained it, but I didn't want to kill the momentum of the scene. So I'll explain it here, I guess, which is when Theodora blasted Gonador and the Eldritch Blasts became fire dragons and ate Gonador, basically, uh, that very easily could have been just like DM Fiat. Like, I want this to happen, so it happens. There actually is a story explanation, which is something I tried to be very, very persistent about saying throughout every episode, probably multiple times per episode about gods and their intervening. Uh, It's... It probably got annoying how often I hammer that point home, but they the gods couldn't directly intervene and just start blowing each other up without reasons. That's why like Zeriel didn't want to intervene, didn't want to invade the prime material directly. It's why Ogma imprisoned Theodora rather than kill her. Uh, it's the whole thing going back to Alice's conversation about where she got the staff, like a good God blessed it. And then she stole it. And it's like that power was always there, but it wasn't until Gonador intervened and killed the stalker that Bahamut had authorization to intervene, basically. Like there was a there was a truce and Gondor broke it. And so Bahamut was free to go full out, basically. Mm-hmm. Like that that's why Zora wasn't just nuking everyone throughout the whole campaign. It's just because there's only so much power 
a god could use without basically destroying the whole mutually assured destruction thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. And so that was something I tried to hit throughout the whole season. There's a whole uh, like framework for like the interdependence of all these things. And mostly people are here for the show to talk about butts and stuff. <laughs> but I keep I keep being myself. I'm sorry. Um, okay. So Syretha asks, for most of the players, how did it feel to play as more than one character this season? Uh. <laughs> it was fun, but oh. I am glad I stuck to one character. One was more than enough for me. I was actually hankering to do more, playing as more than one character myself. So as we mentioned, I have, I have had a panic attack like on air. I have really, really bad anxiety, and my life is a trash pit. So like, I would take those scenes where other characters, you know, were talking about me there, to kind of like collect myself mm. emotionally. And to not have that buffer was very stressful. I I think for me, not doing more than one character, I can definitely empathize with that. Like, I think if I didn't have that down, that downtime between scenes to decompress, or I was having to jump between role playing one character with one set of motivations and then jump to a different person with a different set of motivations, I would have struggled with that. So good on you all for managing. I don't have any particular issue with with playing multiple characters. I've done that before in the past. Uh, I think the only challenge that really came of it was uh, less of a having multiple characters thing and more about uh, not being a particularly amazing voice actor in that I struggled at times when having, you know, Stella Rosa and Zoe talk to one another to be able to switch to the other one's voice and make it distinct enough that I feel an audience will be able to identify that the speaker has changed. Um it's just one thing that I don't have a particularly fast range of voices to do unless I'm like, oh, hey, I'm going to have uh, Ed Wynn talk to Christopher Walken or something <laughs> like that, you know? I mean, can I say? I think you fucking nailed it. Like, it was a joy roleplaying with you. I feel like you were always, like, giving your A-game, Chris, and I just, yeah. like, everyone's great. I just feel like I I don't I don't say it enough. You know, it's just that, that, that Protestant, like, keep it all bottled up. I just want to take this moment <laughs> to just be like, you fucking nailed it, and it was great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and as to pile on the, uh, that there, it's like, again, the moment that I realized that you were on uh, this season, Chris, I was just like, oh, this is going to be a treat. And it certainly was. Oh, I don't know how to take compliments, guys. I'm going to have to leave. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, a couple of quick lore questions. Syretha asks, who was the hooded petitioner that spoke to Veltari during the final battle? Uh, Iris? Mm-hmm. She desecrated a lot of dying people and used them in her war for revenge. It's just pretty evil, but she didn't, she wasn't chaotic or like part of a caste thing. She just was trying to get revenge. So bad person, but understandably so. Neutral evil ended up there, got her revenge. So I thought that was like she, a kind of a minor character in terms of screen time. But I feel like if you listen to the whole season over again, her like she has a full kind of thing in the background. And I, I was happy with the way that turned out. Um, also, another point of where uh, Perry Mason was very useful, because if she, you hadn't noticed she was in the basement, maybe you just would have left and she would have just kept going. Choices. Uh, other lore question, uh, Andrew Alvarez asks, does this have any long-term effects on the lifespan of long-lived races? So, nope. Um, if you were mortal already, this shouldn't affect you. 
related. Don asks, if the party didn't kill Gonador, would he have died in the near future anyway? Uh, yep. He was dying already. Yeah, actually, I think I should have hit harder the final image of, like, basically him weeping blood down on top of you, which is so fucking metal. I only said it once. I feel like I should have emphasized it. He was dying, and killing him there, the main point was that he didn't kill you, right? Like, he... He was going down down no matter what, but he was going to try to take you with him. So you still accomplished something by killing him. Right, right. Yay. Uh, Chase Jones asks, what would have happened if the divine intervention succeeded in the finale? Uh, this is when Roland asked Mara to use the cleric feature divine intervention and it failed. Short answer, I don't know. <laughs> Long answer, I would have made something up. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where I like... I feel like- Pure, that, that was pure meta gaming on my part. I'm just like, we, this is our last chance to use this feature here. Might as well throw it in the wind and see what happens like wild magic, you know? Uh, Jacob Trapp asks, what was Winnie's reaction in Epilogue Story? Um, he worked for the mayor's office until Zoe no longer wanted to be mayor, presumably. And then he worked at the patisserie with Mara. Uh, I, I, he didn't get any lines, but I feel like there was a, there was a strong dose of Winnie. I don't feel like he... He got his screen time, right? And we didn't overuse him. I feel like he could have become kind of overused. And I feel like we got just the right amount of Winnie. I like to think he was happy. Yeah. I like Winnie a lot. He got to put his jams in my pastries. So, hey. Like, just like British Baking Show. The thing the thing I like about, like, thinking about Winnie in the epilogue is that so many of the people we did talk about stayed in Ilium and found a role within Ilium that made them happy. Right. That I like to imagine that that made Ilium a very pleasant place for Winnie to stay. Was it, is that for Roland, who ultimately left after taking getting the last person out of the mirror? Just like... After being instrumental in helping the town, so he, got, he did his thing. I'm pretty sure people still didn't like it when he left, but that's just because, you know... He got mixed reviews on when Yelp. Help Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah, help Yelp. Um uh let's see here. Um another Jacob Trap question. How did you imagine the ending would be if Light or Nim were the final boss as intended? Um so I actually really like the way the party responded to Warden Light. I feel like both the party and the audience, like there was a really clear split of people who thought he should die screaming <laughs> and who liked him more or less. Um, it, a lot of that stuff worked out really well. Like, I feel like there's a lot of people who were genuinely pro tower and anti tower. There were people who were team evil and who wanted Dora to win. Like there pretty much every conflict had people on both sides, which is really nice. Uh, the only thing about the, that ultimate plan was for Nim and light to be the kind of final boss was that y'all merged Nim <laughs> like halfway through so that was never really on the table um do you guys have any regrets about how any of that turned out because i mean the 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 answer to this question is i don't know i would have made something up <laughs> not in particular the thing that stands out to me is like i do i, I think those two as final bosses only would have worked if we'd had party unity on what the right way to deal with the barrier was and i think that it's kind of good that in a world where the party was split on how to deal with the barrier, we didn't have one of those two paths as like, this is the final boss path. I think it was more interesting. Oh, it's absolutely more interesting. Yeah. In a more traditional campaign where everyone is going to agree to be on the same team and then you get like a Shin Megami Tensai choice at the end for <laughs> law or, you know, chaos. I guess they're both lawful, so really good and evil. Um, I think that would have been fine. I don't. I wouldn't have been not proud of that. 
But I think what our show did is what makes our show special. We, you need something to distinguish yourself, right? You're putting something out into the world. It's like, why should people give your thing time and not other things? And I think that those choices and all of that complication and stuff makes Dice Funk special. And so I'm not, I don't have any regrets about how any of that turned out. Uh, I do think they probably would have been cool alternate stuff, but what happened was great. And I mean, that goes as far as Garrick too, who, I mean, I got messages from people saying the Garrick arc was their favorite in the show's history. And I got messages from people saying like, I couldn't follow the detective stuff (laughs) and both are fine. I think actually doing a detective story at all is incredibly risky and tabletop and D&D especially. Oh yeah. There's actually entire games which are just dedicated to that. Most notably, I think Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which is a game that's just about that. And the way that game works is you always get the clue. Like you go to a new scene and you get the clue because if you don't, the whole thing falls apart. Like that's how detective stories are. Like what happens if you roll and you don't get the clue? This story just stops. And I think that you guys crushed the Garrick investigation. You went from plot point to plot point. You did interviews. You made leaps. You investigated. You guys nailed it. And I didn't once have to intervene, basically. I never had to be like, you should do this. Like, you guys just did it. And maybe that's not a, something you can really appreciate as a listener, but it was a huge undertaking. And it, I think it came out really great. And Garrick could have been like he could have been the final boss. He was basically the Punisher. His whole thing was like, I'm going to go around and killing people because I think they deserve it. And Dora to just snuff him out was so fucking raw. It was like when Kefka kills the king guy in Final Fantasy VI, where you're like, oh, this emperor, whatever, must be like really important. Oh, no, it's the clown jester, dude. Like <laughs> it just fucking erased him. And it was metal as hell. I did my best. You did. You done did good. So, yeah, I could talk more about Garrick. I think that's a character that probably could have gotten a little bit more exp- explanation, exploration. The thing was that he got hit with a silence spell in his second appearance, which means he didn't really get to show off his personality a lot. Um, but I think if people got the main point, which is that he represented retributive justice and Warden Light represented rehabilitative justice and Count Danto was preventative justice, basically, with all the hanging and the torturing and whatnot. And like the way that dialectic worked was... I think clear in the text. So I'm happy with that. I just wish uh, Garrick would have gotten to be an asshole on camera more before you murdered him. (laughs) All right. Rick asks, what was each person's favorite NPC? I liked Wolf a lot. Yeah. Wolf was my favorite as well. I really loved Wolf. Winnie. Cause I want to hug him. Winifred and Wolf were definitely the most fun voices to do. I think I think Wolf was lovely because like the way he was initially introduced he seemed he was a character that like initially seemed like he was being introduced to be sort of bumbling not really much anything character but like very early on he he makes some statement about you don't know me I have layers and I was just <laughs> very very quickly won over by like oh there is more to you I love you you're wonderful I'm going to be your friend <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was essentially just a red herring in the Garrick quest line, but he can't, he, I mean, first of all, he just totally changed when I opened my mouth. I thought he was just kind of like a humble farmer, and then he became this, like, wild prospector dude. But <laughs> also, he became much more likable, because he was supposed to be belligerent. Like, he hit Roland. Like, I had him statted out for a boss fight if, like, it got rowdy. Like, there, <laughs> there was no expectation that you guys would befriend him. But once you did, it just felt natural. Yeah, like I, I am so glad that like that like Wolf was Veltari's like best friend in town because just like w- Wolf is great. I love Wolf. 
Um, I actually liked Alice quite a bit because Alice um, pushed me very early on to establish what Roland's characterization was uh, fairly aggressively because I'm like, oh, wait, <clears throat> am I going to be like the, the douchebag lawful paladin who's just going to take this person in because they, they're doing some form of necromancy, osteomancy, or I'm going to follow through on this character to a T and I felt like it set up a nice dynamic, especially when The Rock showed up, and it's like, okay, how are we going to handle this? Is this going to turn into a fight? I don't know, but I got to intersect in some way. I got to intervene in some way. Alice was a more low-key character, but I did enjoy playing her. She had like a lot of world-weariness, like hiding kindness. It was, it was interesting, and in a similar vein. I think Warden Light, from a writing perspective, like as a like literary critic mode, Right now, I think he was the most complex and interesting character, even mm -hmm. if he wasn't necessarily fun to play or interact with. Hey, because <laughs> I was playing someone who was like, couldn't lie, but had a secret, but also had something they had erased from their memory. And it was I was trying to play this in like three different levels while being true to religious mm -hmm. ideals, while also being kind of a dangerous asshole. It's like there's right. there's just a lot there. I like mean, you did a great job making like uh, a character where I looked at him and I was like, you know, eventually like, oh, this is gonna be interesting. No, he's an asshole. No, I feel really sorry for him, and I don't want him to die because. You know, he he's just made a bunch of mistakes and could could possibly be redeemed himself in some way. The the fact that like I was dead set on like, yep, we're gonna use plane of binding on light, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it, and then we like worked out what light's deal was and I was like, Oh no, no, I'm going back on that plan. Like I completely retracted like Veltari's whole plan of what she thought she was gonna do because the depth you had to light just caught me off guard. I'm proud of light. It definitely was a lot um, harder to play than some of the, like the more fun characters like Winifred and Wolf. But that's that's probably something that um, from a from a pure craft perspective probably worked out the best. Um, next question: Chase Jones asks, "Why was Light so upset when Zoe used Nim's real name? Did Light have a real name, and was he an allusion to Uriel, the Archangel?" And then replying to their own question, Chase asks, did you reference the Book of Enoch with all the names and imagery like the giants in town? The answers to that question are uh, a lot of yeses <laughs> and some explanation. Uh, Light was upset with Zoe because using someone's true name is a gross, grotesque violation of body, bodily autonomy, uh, which is kind of a running theme. Veltari's whole shtick was like mind-controlling people, and it was one of the things that established her as being kind of fucked up before she became better. And then her whole thing was like, well, now I'm weak. So I should combine my fucked up shit with doing good, which culminated in controlling Dora. So I feel like all of that flowed together very nicely. And it was important that we established some of those themes early or else the ending might've been kind of too dark. As far as uh, light's real name, Probably would have been Uriel. I never established that on air, so it was subject to change. But Uriel means light of God. So naturally, I, I, that's one of the things. Like I said something multiple times, like all angels' names end in L. Gabriel, Michael, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Barakael. But no one ever really questioned just light. I thought someone would bring it up. Uh, so he, yeah, he did have another name, and that was probably what it was going to be. Uh, yes, it's deliberate invocation of the... Uh, apocryphal book of first Enoch 
which is about fallen angels, including Barakael and the Nephilim and giants, which were also elements of this season. So, yep, all of that was intentional. Uh, also, just like there's so many layers to that stuff, and it feels pretentious and assholey to like talk about it. But like in John Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, Uriel shows up and is like the person who controls the orb of the sun. Warden Light had the orb on the tower, which is the fake sun, right? The f- every everything I write is just that. <laughs> it's just that all the way down. So similar to how last season everyone was named after a musical act, this season was you really uh pat yourself on the back for uh <laughs> deep knowledge of religious texts. There was a lot of that. The the actual naming convention was literature, and I just mm-hmm. put in religious texts as literature. So that's like the thing that ties that together. But like there's so much of that stuff that I don't know if people have discussed. I, at least I haven't seen it. The, the The community figured out the literature stuff. There's a thread on the forums where they pulled apart a lot of those, and they were right a lot about a lot of it. Did you guys have any questions about any of the names? Any I can I can do that. But Wolf, Wolf is Virginia Wolf. Yeah, there we go. Everyone thought it was Beowulf. Yeah, which is of course a better reference, <laughs> but that's because uh, who Wolf was the character changed a lot. In my conception, originally he was kind of a lonely farmer and Virginia Woolf's The Hours is about loneliness, essentially, which is what I was going for. And then he became this whole other thing, which is much a much rowdier troll in the style of kind of Norse Germanic mythology, which is more appropriate for a Beowulf reference. Oh, I got one. Uh, what was the reference for Ganador? <laughs> That's D&D original, baby. Oh, um, but there's all kinds of stuff like that. I'm sure someday someone will write that essay. Like, did I, have we ever talked about the, the horsemen of the apocalypse in season two? No. Mm-mm. All right. So you guys fought uh, a group of four people, the black hearts, and they were all associated with the color. One of them had a red hand. One of them wore a white coat. One of them had green armor. And one of them was a dark elf, which are the four color of the horsemen of the apocalypse. And they, they literally are harb- like were harbingers of the end of the world. And it's like each of them was associated with the thing they were. Like war was the goblins, which were waging war against the gnolls and et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Like everything is that forever and ever. Amen. Um, I'm sorry about who I am to an extent, but never apologize. <laughs> um, Jonathan Kwiatkowski asks, what became of Mr. Smooches and Jesus the dog? They live in the zoo. Well, never Hey Zeus. Hey Zeus is probably with Stella Rosa still, right? Oh, true. Narratively, I would probably say Stella Rosa actually probably gave Hey Zeus to Zoe to take care of because the the concept of Stella Rosa now is she's off trying to fix every problem of the world. So it's probably a lot easier for somebody who's never going to leave this one town for at least the immediate future to take care of a dog as opposed to somebody who's going to be like planar traveling at every instant. Plus, I feel like Jesus just fits more in Ilium. It's like a floating purple dog in a town that's full of that kind of stuff. So that might be a good place for him. Plus, it's all backyard. Like, everything's a backyard, basically. But isn't everything a backyard when you can fly? True. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just took fucking, like, a drug for the first time. My mind just opened to a whole new level. For the first time. I mean, a new drug for the first time. Okay, yeah, there we go. Mechanical question, uh, Ephelon asks, how much time do you actually spend recording and how much time of prep did each member of the cast do outside the recording session itself? So we block off an hour and a half to do this show. We usually go to two because we're bad at pacing. 
Um, I, we do our best, but like, let's just be honest about our shortcomings and our strengths and weaknesses. We usually go over our hour and a half time. Um, prep time, you guys? Uh, I mean, it, it changes week to week depending on what like we have coming up to do. I plead the fifth. <laughs> there's there's times where like certain like maybe when downtime episodes are coming up where I'll spend a bit, little bit more time kind of researching, figure out what exactly what it is I want to do. Like clearly I spent some time in the episode before Zoe went to talk to Sylvia so I could figure out the tarot cards, just trying to like research tarot cards and try to, you know, extrapolate meaning from that. But like in a week to week thing, you know, I have my character sheet and everything like that. And it's kind of just see where the episode takes us. Cause very rarely do I have any idea where things are actively going to go. Once we start recording. I, I probably do the most active like research and pre prep between the players, but that's just because one, I'm a complete like uh nut job when it comes to like analyzing mechanics and stuff like that. And, and stuff and design and figuring out the best way to present information to people. And in terms of pre-season, pre-campaign research, I mean, one, people in the forums have probably seen the backstories that were written for both Elias and Roland, both of which Austin has extensively utilized in the campaigns. And that's, and a lot of research goes into that as well, because for me, like, that's the only way I can really get myself into the character from a perspective standpoint. Um, and so that, that's, I have to do that because it's, otherwise it's hard for me to get into the character, um, honestly. I think for me, it would depend on if there was a week that like, let's say we were doing recording for, for one episode and something came up and I'm like, oh, next episode, I kind of want to do this thing as a result. If I knew something that I wanted to do during the following an episode, I might Wednesday or Thursday in the week Usually I would go and chat to Skitch and just be like, uh, mechanically, does this thing work? Or here's an idea. Does this sound like it works narratively? Uh, otherwise, like for a standard week, I literally like, I finish work and then have a nap because like it's midnight my time when we start recording. And I wake up like 10 minutes to midnight and very groggily roll downstairs. I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm awake. Mm, podcast. And I, that's about my prep on, like, the actual day. Syretha asks, Skitch, did Austin give you a heads up about incorporating Mardis into the story? <laughs> it was the other way around. Hell yes. Mardis was not my character. I had no plans for that. I didn't write any of that. Skitch just approached me one day and said, hey, I have an idea. And then several weeks later, I found an opportunity to use the idea. Yeah, basically the idea, once uh, Lucas was established as being a Rosemary, I, I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a there's a tenuous connection with one of the NPCs in season two. I could create a little bit of a connection to there. And then I just had this idea of, what if Elias uh, was friends with the Rosemary family for a long time, had a son, and the son became friends with the family as well? That was the basic setup. I did not plan on Martis being someone who was the first prisoner in the mirrors. That was Austin's doing, but that was just, just like with, um, I, I view it as the same thing as when I threw out the letters into the Feywild as Elias, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was me offering a window, and then you just grabbed it at an opportune time to introduce Sildiel, which is interesting how well she's gone over as an NPC over the two seasons she's now been involved in, but, um, 
honestly, it was kind of fun to have that character because it had the extra connection there. And also, um, it presented an interesting perspective on the whole uh, relationship of light, grace, and everyone else. So, but that was totally my fault. And this is part of me just over-researching things. So, And that's also why Mardis exists outside of the tarot stuff, which is fine. My intention for that was for tarot to represent some things, not just the characters individually, not just to be a reference to things I like, but because tarot is the story of life. And I knew that the end of the series hinged on the a mass death. It was part of that foreshadowing and also death as a card itself being both change and death more generally, obviously being a huge hint as to the nature of everything. Um, I mean, there's a lot of that. Like if you look at, Every every location is named after a bone. Uh, every major faction is something associated with the afterlife. Skeletons, ghosts, zombies, devils, angels. All of that is classic literary memento mori. Like, right. Mardis exists outside of that, but I feel like we made it work and we didn't we didn't go too deep. Like Sildiel shows up, but we don't spend a lot of time sitting around and being like, Remember, remember, remember. Like mm-hmm. it was just like if you got it, it's fine. If not, help showed up. Right. This is a complicated ass season, huh? I, I think it was pretty straightforward. It's a town. There's a barrier around it. Stuff happens. The end. You know. Mm-hmm. Clap your hands. Go home. Also, what I, uh, one of the things I liked is when things that we just set up naturally just kind of dovetail. Like there's a staggering amount of that. One thing that struck me while I was editing the finale was. The last speech Veltari gives at the party about like, I was just thinking about how I could have ended up where Dora was. And I mean, that sentiment is called, uh, but for the grace of God, go I, which I mean, literally means if God didn't exist, things would be worse, which is how the fucking season ends. Yeah, I wish I could say that was intentional. (laughs) So, yeah, it's all that. Like, you just set up enough pins and, like, y'all are going to blunder into them. It's fine. (laughs) But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I I had a similar thing, even in Roland's backstory, because after that, I read up about the whole baby orc problem, in quotes, regarding a test for paladins. And I look at my backstory, I'm like, "I I wrote this into my backstory without even realizing it was a concept. So it was a, uh, it, it, it's interesting when that kind of happens when you're in the zone when it comes to the storytelling. So, oh, and like Dora just happening to be an immortal when everyone in the, you know, all the major NPCs were immortal and it was like a big theme where I'd have like Carrie talk about like, oh, I can't be in a normal relationship because I'm immortal. And Dante would be like, I can't even enjoy killing people anymore because I'm, I'm immortal. So I've done it so much. And it's like everybody did that like Zariel was like oh I used to really care about people but then I lived so long I lost my empathy and there's like Dora just fits perfectly into that there's no humanly possible way that Lauren could have known that was just like I just picked a a fae spirit thing that I thought looked cool in the book and it all just worked out yeah I was just like hmm big eyeball (laughs) (laughs) a twitter name but that's about it asks were there any battles that were supposed to occur but ended up being skipped oh yes nope can't can't think of one <laughs> supposed is an interesting word there uh nothing is supposed to happen but structurally you guys skipped basically all of the fights for the first half that i had kind of put out there the rocks you didn't really fight wolf you didn't really fight um although veltari <laughs> sort of had a fight with him um though like all the fights you did have were kind of unplanned the wind elemental uh claire actually the claire fight 
both the one in the Hawthorne house and later when Zoe was a dragon and she hit her with a fireball. It is a miracle that Zoe and Clara didn't kill each other. Yeah, I fully, I was so on board with the notion. I was like, yeah, they're probably going to have a big battle to the death here. Chris and I had even talked about, like, secretly, like, having a fight to the death just between Dora and Zoe. Yeah. But it just kind of didn't happen that way. Like, we had planned on it. Like, I was going to kill Zoe, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, one of the wild things about D&D in general is because some of it, so much of it is premised on combat that there's just this assumption that you'll be constantly fighting to the death, even though in real life people don't fight to the death that often. And so you have to like kind of concoct situations where that's a natural outcome. Otherwise, your characters are fucking monstrous. Like there was kind of a running joke in season one where we killed some miners and it was like, yeah, it's D&D. You kill people who talk to you like that and it's like we just did a murder <laughs> like you can't just kill people and it's just like D is a weird uh, headspace where sometimes that is a, a natural outcome in when in real life it would be unthinkable but i think we did a really good job in season three of it all feeling like we fought when it needed to happen and only then and then if you look back on it we had like 20 fights like it's not like, like people say that we spent a lot of time talking about feelings and we did but there were there was combat like if you if you charted out we had a fight about every two episodes mm. mm-hmm. um wombat joe asks when did lauren realize she was going to be the <laughs> she's going full baddie probably when i had to choose well when i had to choose between the rocks and ganadar yeah that was like the break that was like the 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 hard breaking point basically yeah because i i had a suspicion when it was like bear up or bear down and i was clearly going to choose the different as soon as i can't remember who said it first but somebody was like can't let ganadar win and i was like well i think zoe said it because i i i know zoe was the one who outright stated like it was right after the information was given to the party she was the one who was like i, I don't know about you guys but i've already picked my side and, and stayed very openly and i'll stop anybody who tries to take down the barrier yeah and i was i tried to be ominous and I'm, i think i'm bad at it but i was like i made my choice and so I, I kind of had an angling there, but when I had to choose, you know, between banging or having a god, <laughs> that's I was pretty sure. I mean, isn't that just like life's oldest qu- <laughs> question, <laughs> old, oldest thing? No, I think everyone did a really good job at getting their characters across. Uh, there's some things that maybe some people might wonder about, but I think part of that is also just you know, down to the lengths of which you're able to read into things. I mean, there were quite a few times, as you said, where things have been stated otherwise or in different fashions. I don't know if it actually made it to the episode, but someone once comparing Dora's relationship with Ghani to an abusive relationship or just the fact that we referenced characters who have immortality in these things, how Carrie doesn't connect with people in real relationship because she lives forever. And that was with Dora's relationship with the Rocks ultimately kind of, you know, reached a point where, you know, she said, like, I can't, this is why I can't love anybody or anything like that. Like, all that really kind of painted a clear line towards why this all made sense for Dora as a character. I was so worried everyone was going to think that was stupid and cheesy. Well, I mean, it, it was one of those things that I think a lot of people, especially when they sort of reflect on the final episode, you know, they, they it took them until the final episode to get it. But I think it helped that there was a lot of other things framing it, Lauren, so that when you kind of set that up in the final episode, it was like, of course. What what else is Dora going to do? She's not going to just give up on God of Dora now after centuries or longer of time. 
you know? Right. Theodore is the manifestation of the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> I'm, I'm already into this eyeball for everything. Might as well. Yep. Yeah, like, I, I like some of the parallels to other characters with immortality, with this whole idea of, like, when you're immortal, you either don't make, you know, connections at all, or you make connections with other people who are also immortal, because that's that's the way to keep yourself from getting hurt. And, you know, that was that was the route that, that Dora went, was find another immortal and st- stick all your eggs in their basket. <laughs> And I mean, the immortality isn't all it's cracked up to be is kind of a well-worn trope. And I didn't want it to just stand alone because it has no applicability yet, at least technologically, right? Like no one's in life needs to be taught that lesson. So what what it really represented to me was the importance of empathy and how people who lived long lost that. And that was really the tragedy. It was like, why is Warden Light so fucked up in some way right like he's low-key fucked up but he's fucked up and it's just because like he has lost some of his empathy over the long time and and he had to discard some of it to protect his, his daughter and like danto just wanted to be a you know just wanted to have his own place where he could be left alone with bumbershoot and i think i think empathy is what it comes back to all all of it that's part of the roland story with uh galen with respect to you know zealotness and being too uh, rigid in your worldviews also denies you empathy there. So I think it's, uh, we talked a lot about different uh, like motifs and stuff throughout the show. And I think a lot of them are pretty explicit. Like no one's confused about the fact that we talked about the prison system or death or justice and we called out some stuff, but like there's, there's other things in there. Like there was the importance of names which I feel like you get at with the true name stuff, but it's it's actually much more mundane than that. Like everything from like Claire Elise renaming herself uh, to kind of symbolize her taking on her own identity, being her own person to the fact that like certain people refused to use the right name. Like they disrespected Bumbershoot by calling him like Bumblesnoot and like people would not use Roland's name. They just call him like church boy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the, the way that names function a reflection of people's respect for each other. And the, I think that echoes throughout a lot of the campaign too. It's just like all, all, all these little things, which we built mostly unintentionally. And then we realized them and then we like leaned in basically. It's a shame that there's 38 hours of this thing because that's a lot to comb through to write think pieces, but someone should do it. I imagine it will. It's a very, uh, very interested audience. that seems to like delving into that. So uh, there, there's a couple questions in the forums from people who didn't have Twitter accounts. Um, yeah, hit me. Uh, one's from John Paul. He basically says, uh, I was curious about whether Ganny knew or at least suspected that the coming of death would kill the gods and whether he thought he could escape um, or if it was just an, uh, an effort to just troll people. Like, I don't care if I die as long as I fuck over all the other gods in the process. Gonador had no idea what would happen. He, right, the gods communicated with each other saying, we know what's going on, we gotta stop this, and Ganador was like, over, you know, at his place, you know, not giving a shit, then realizing, hey, they're trying to do something over there, I think we're gonna mess it up. That's my, that, that was my sense of it. There was a small secret cabal of gods whose symbols were on the spine, which were the only ones who knew, which, it, the meta explanation of that is that the form's 
were a big element of season two and the events of season two were recorded by the god primus mm. who whose recording existed outside of the timeline and so that's where that information came from <laughs> on a bigger picture scale and that's why there's some of the gods had a better idea of what was happening but th- that was kind of like a secret collection of people Ogma, the triad the god of winter uh, those people who knew about it G- ganador didn't he's just like wanted to break people's toys and he ended up shooting himself in the foot. Like he stepped on all the rakes, Simpson style. And that was just kind of karmic for him. But yeah, he didn't know. Although he might have still done it if he did know. Because I think a line I said early in the season, which I definitely knew the importance of, was that he would he would die a thousand deaths if it merely inconvenienced someone else. Because that's how petty he is. Yeah, I mean, like that's one of the things I kind of expressed to some people in the Discord. It's like, you have to remember how, like, how much of a douche ganadar is as an entity um and that's just sort of how it is the other person asked some questions in the uh, forum was revan one was why didn't warden light act sooner against the necromancer i'm guessing plot contrivance or this so i mean warden light says that he doesn't want to be a tyrant so he mostly leaves things to other people mm. um so he would he probably wouldn't have ever gone over there personally mm. the reason that it was waited until then is because it was the opportunity of the skeleton party mm-hmm. um, because otherwise just sending someone in there during normal times would be kind of a suicide mission. They would just get stabbed by 40 skeletons. And so, I mean, he's not, I mean, Warden Light has problems. He's not like that. He's not vindictive. He's not like he, he cares about people dying on his watch. So that's why. I have a question while, while Skitch is looking. Um, so, I don't think there was ever an answer to this in the show. Uh, Grace. Was Grace intended to be Light and Lucas's biological child? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the follow-up question I had there was, was the intention that one of them be read as trans? Um, I was cognizant of that, but I, did, I didn't feel like it was... This is weird to say, but like, I didn't feel like it was my place to make that decision. <laughs> That's fair. I totally, I totally get you on that. It was just a thing that had definitely come across in my mind being like, just the fact that like, it's like, okay, it's entirely possible that they had adopted, but the thing was that like, okay, this child has physical traits of both species going on, which suggested biological child. And I just found that interesting. Part of who I am is that I'm intensely uninterested in other people's genitals as a general rule. So- I'm, I'm not saying that like I necessarily want an answer to that, but the fact that like your answer is yes, that Grace is their biological child, that is enough of an answer for me to be like, ah, okay, that's just a thing I didn't know. Yeah, I'm fully supportive of that reading. I think you could also just say magic because magic is D and D thing, but like that that was the other reading. I was like, is is this like? gender is this is this magic angels i don't know how angels reproduce I, I, in in the in the bible they they don't got the dick <laughs> because they do a whole bunch of dicking and then they get in trouble um but in i i like to think maybe this is naive i'd like to think something like an angel would be kind of above caring about genitals yeah like i just don't think that would be a, a primary concern for them but then again God is very interested in sex in the Bible. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, yeah. I mean, if you guys have questions, I feel like we're basically um, nearing the end of this recording. So this is the last time. After this, no one in the universe will ever be allowed to talk about this adventure again. <laughs> I mean, I, my, my curiosity I had was, 
in looking up some information about half elves and otherwise, I realized, wait a minute, Roland's going to be able to live like for another hundred and forty years, roughly after the session's done. If he's just wandering around doing stuff, is he going to invari invariably end up causing not necessarily a cult, but some following like a traditional Paladinwood and older D and D, and that would create some sort of proto-religion sort of thing? I don't know, but it's just it was just a thought that came to mind. Like, huh. What is the longer term implication of that sort of stuff? But yeah, we don't need to really explore that. And this is just this is just a preference. I'm not saying this is bad to do, but I feel like cult is a kind of intensely played out thing in Dungeons and Dragons. So I kind of want to steer away from that. No, 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 I understand. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it would be more akin to like a philosophical movement or something like that, because that's how, that's how I kind of positioned Roland anyways in the, in the epilogue as sort of like acknowledging that gods are gone and now ideas have to lead as opposed to deities, you know. Uh, I had one uh, one thing I want to bring up, uh, and this is actually something I, I want to make a, a quick apology for uh, because this was not an intentional thing. But this is something I only realized after we had basically finished recording all the episodes. Uh, and there was a joke that we've been making over the last sequence of them. Uh, but I did not re uh, really recognize until after the fact that we were making a joke about Zoe, who is a dyslexic character, having misspelled the sash on like the title on her sash and doesn't seem to recognize it. Uh, I don't know. No one they like, called this out or anything like that. But it's something I did want to address as not being an intentional joke at the idea of having dyslexia making you dumb or something like that. That's not mm. what I was going for at all. It was just me being very dumb and not realizing that that was kind of an unfortunate implication of that joke. So I wanted to just uh, state that for the record, especially if people listen to this, you know, after the fact and they, they see that and think it's uh, like a low key jab at it. Um, the whole point of Zoe being dyslexic wasn't to make jokes about it. It was a way to kind of explain why she had a, a lower intelligence score was to represent that she's not dumb. She has, you know, difficulty comprehending things. Yeah. I, I definitely could understand if someone reads it that way. F personally, I know someone, I grew up with someone who's dyslexic. And so a lot of my treatment of that was literally just kind of regurgitating like in jokes from that real life relationship. So I, and none of it what came from a place of toxicity. It was like, Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I just want people to understand. I am very dumb. <laughs> I mean, it, so that's why things happen. It, 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 I mean, granted, it was not something that really drove up in a lot of places. I mean, my family has a history of dyslexia, and I think I have a little bit of that myself, actually. But like, it was something where it's like it was such a minor point for most of it that it was a fine thing. And honestly, it's just I don't know. There's something about just the way Zoe's character was set up, where stuff like that happened. It was just sort of like, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> just sort of a way to sort of play a little tug and cheek element of. Zoe's characterization, which really I think, kept her very grounded as a character within the context of the party. I mean, Zoe was mostly a way for me to get across all of my favorite anime and video game <laughs> references in a character, basically. So, I mean, she had more to it, but that's what she eventually became. Be well, you know, she gets a stand, she has a key, a key blade, you know, she looks like a Super Saiyan. It was pretty satisfying overall. She became Phil Collins at the end. It was really a great time. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Uh, I had a lot of fun this season. I don't, I don't know if you're looking for final thoughts or if you're just looking for questions. It was a lot. And I'm ready for less. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed this season, but I'm very much looking forward to playing a character who 
at least as I I currently have them planned is going to be a lot less heavy on the like ah feelings let's let's talk about those and a lot more silly goof stupid gimmick. I have to warn my character is not necessarily going to be less feely. It's just going to be a different branch of things going on. So I'm certainly looking forward to the next season as well, though, and it should be uh, it should be a lot of fun. I'm going to be a cat. <laughs> that's true i'm not gonna mention my gimmick until we get there but like the voice i have for for season four is oh i'm so excited uh, i am so excited to have a character voice that is like drastically different to my own voice i got i, I gotta drop some heat on you austin actually that brings it up i remember when we brought up the wild magic table i was like oh you should throw on there your character's voice change so that way i could throw in spit voices and that was not on there at all instead you made me have to think and uh be a, a creative writer and role player so i just want you to know i found a way to make that an element of my new character so fuck you i'm gonna throw all of my awful impersonations into the next one did you see the wild magic table i published it on, on my patreon um one of the questions we got was what would have been the effect of a crit on it? Cause I, uh, I, I, I have looked at it uh, and seen that the last one was super Saiyan, which has me pretty bummed. That never happened. Part of me was hoping that you would do the thing in the final that you always joked about, which was just blow all of your spell slots as quickly as possible. And hopefully just mathematically stumble into it. And then you get to beat down Dora in super Saiyan mode. <laughs> See, yeah, I, I, I had so many, I like in my mind, I was like, one day it's going to happen. And we kept getting into fights where I thought this would be the chance where it would happen. But then there was always somebody more competent around to make sure that it wasn't <laughs> necessary. And I was like, I should probably hold on for that for next time then. Because I was also like, you know, there could just be one on here that's like your character fucking like their lifespan shortens by 80% or something like <laughs> your arms explode. Like I had no idea what could be possible on there. And I was like, what if I cause what it's like an explosion happens above you. And it's like, also you teleported yourself into a four foot room. You know, like mm -hmm. something like that happened. So I was always like, this could be like the fucking swan song of the character. So I was I was careful not to like use it early. But I suppose by doing so, it didn't happen at all. It's like the story of my life in every JRPG I've ever played where I'm like, <laughs> this will give me a huge stat bonus. But temporarily better save these for the final boss and just never gets used. Ninety nine elixirs. Roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was Alejandro Colon asked, how exactly would a Super Saiyan power up work mechanically? I probably would have just given you like advantage on everything during the fight as you got like, you know, super powerful. But it's more about the flavor of you being surrounded by the aura and yelling and your hair standing up. Oh, that would have been so sweet. I'd have turned on every sweet Dragon Ball Z track on the background. <laughs> just have that going, that blaring. Yeah, that'd be pretty dope. But I, I like that you had a respect for the wild magic table. Like I, there's a version of this where you were disruptive and kept trying to basically game it or be like, do you disrespectful to other people's kind of enjoyment by making it about you? But I think you, you basically were right at the perfect amount of where like it was important and it was fun, but it didn't become the only thing. <laughs> I mean, early on, I definitely was like, I feel like every episode should have at least one magic, well, wild magic role. But there's a pretty long stretch towards the end where I was like, yeah, things are pretty serious. I probably shouldn't start screwing with stuff too much. <laughs> yeah. So season four should start next week. Uh, it's going to be very different in a lot of ways. I joke that I'm going to staple all of the player characters together so they can't split the party, but I chained them together in season two and they immediately extricated themselves from that, going so far as to break their own limbs. 
So probably not effective, but it's going to contrast in a lot of way. I think we're going to get some different tones. We're going to get some uh, different themes. I got a bunch of things in store. I think I'm going to step up my villain game. I've done a lot of uh, complex villains. Oh, and a lot of a lot of people with layers. I think maybe I'll just do some assholes next season. How does that sound? Are you just going to give us like a powerful, unequivocal asshole to fight? Because like I'm up for that. Maybe. Oh. We're going to have to punch him real hard to beat him. <laughs> I, I know myself well enough to know that I'll start that way, but at some point it, it'll be like, what if they actually do have more depth? <laughs> and then I'll suddenly give them a whole bunch of other things. Don't don't care. Still going to still gonna kick their ass. Hmm. How do we usually end these things? I'm, I, I mean, um. Bye. <laughs> nice um all right so thanks for listening everybody it was quite a long complex difficult weird season but i think it turned out well i think uh we all got better at doing this and enjoyed ourselves a lot so thank you for listening and uh we'll see you next week for more but better hopefully more but less stressful I mean, you say that now, yeah, but... Yeah. It always starts less stressful and ramps up that way. Don't make promises you can't keep to yourself there. Oh, oh, yeah, true. Get ready for stupid gimmicks and unpredictable voices. Yeah. Cat mischief. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to whip this voice out.
Hello, Lauren. Hi. Alright, so do you want to thank people? It's the finale, so I brought you on here so you could help me butcher these names. I feel like I'll be better at pronouncing them than you. <laughs> Shots fired? Okay. And then I'll fuck them all up. Do you want to start? I mean, first I want to shout out Leon Thomas, Renegade Cut on YouTube. Everyone should be following him on his Patreon and everything. He provided me with a good joke this episode, but he's never coming back. He wants everyone to be very clear about this. Please respect his wishes to never, ever have to be on the show again. Did y'all see his big fluffy beanie? Yes. (laughs) Cool. Credit's off to a great start. Let's talk about Leon's social media. He's very bald. (laughs) He has a great hat, though. He does. It's very good. Uh, Also, music, of course, Overclocked Remix. Shout out to all of that. We got Vampire Spanker, an arrangement of Vampire Killer from Castlevania. We have Acoustic Jam at the Lucifer Alpha, an arrangement of Biohazard from Snatcher. We have Mystic Chemicals, an arrangement of Mystic Cave Zone and Chemical Plant Zone from Sonic the Hedgehog 2. We have Simply Begrooved, an arrangement of Simple and Clean from Kingdom Hearts, and Destiny Forgotten, an arrangement of Simple and Clean from Kingdom Hearts. Did I do that in record time? Yes, I did. I'm proud of you. You knew them all. (laughs) I'm not sure. I might throw in the jazz track from the Skeleton Party in the finale. And if I'm going to use these credits next week also, thank you for In the Beginning There Was Jazz, an arrangement of Beginning from Castlevania. We've got a lot of play on Castlevania. I feel like people didn't quite get the vampire thing I was going for, but that's fine. I mean, I got it. And that's what really counts. Yeah. <laughs> this is an entirely an elaborate, this entire show is an elaborate ploy for me to entertain you personally. Good job. It kind of worked. Okay. So <laughs> executive producers for December 2017, the final month of this hell year. Lauren, why don't you start trying to pronounce these names? I'm excited. Okay. Joseph Tumbrello. Hi. Kirsten Haslinger. Nope, Kirsteen. Kirsteen. Oh, I should know that. I know that. We know her. I know her. No, she helped me pay my rent. Thank you. Yeah, Kirsteen is very good. Yeah, and Jade, who also helped me pay my rent. Thank you, guys. Extraordinarily horny. (laughs) (laughs) That too. Everyone's going to get a personalized one this month. (laughs) All right, next one. Brent. That one's, I got that one. The good dogs. Yes, they are good dogs, Brent. Mm-hmm. The cult of Gorfanax. Not good dogs. <laughs> Gorfanax is not good dogs, no. <laughs> oh, this one's really good. Dr. Goatman. <laughs> I think I said Goatman, but Goatman's probably good, too. This is We're going to be here for two weeks at this rate. <laughs> okay, Irving T. Royale. Andrew Grothen? Grothen? Who knows? I don't know. Paul Mullen? Levi the Young. Great artist. Yes, big fan. Kevin Dobbins, Anthony Savor. I say Savier, but... Oh my god. You would. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> this is confrontational. I thought this would be fun. <laughs> no, it is fun. I'm just ribbing on you. Mm-hmm. Jason. Voorhees. No. <laughs> Too scary. <laughs> Too spooky. <laughs> Ken Firstal? E... Oh god. No, no, Nante sees P... I don't know. I, this is new for this month. Thank you for your patronage. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna, I'm excited to every time I get a new name, I'm like, I'm going to get a message about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Cummings. You know. Andrew McKitty. You don't know. Jew Man Jack. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gwillem Evans. I think that's a Dark Souls character. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a joke. Oh, I didn't get that joke. It's okay. Mel Meal? 
Mel? I'm so sorry, Mel. Could be Melly. Melly? Teach? Teach? I'm so sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I've been doing this for like two and a half years. All right. George Soros. (laughs) (laughs) That's an extraordinary joke. (laughs) Arjan de Koenig. Koenig? No one could say. Grimlock. From Cybertron. John Potts. <laughs> We're still not even halfway. We're not even halfway. Oh, there's so many. Okay. <laughs> Dawson Parr. Noah Cedret. Zephosaurus. Uh, a big favorite of mine. Just, I really like this name a lot. Elderly Goose. Yeah. Salad Child. Sarah Stone. Thorsten Gross. Devin Smith. I'm just gonna keep going. Yeah, I, I, I realized at that rate we were never gonna finish, so I'm being quiet now. Okay, Caster UK. Aki oh. Mm. Aki Savolainen. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that's close. I say Savolainen. Okay, the Paladin's wife. Florian H. Charm Wilk. Wilkie. I say Wilkie, but. Wilkie. Yeah, that's the E on the end. Yeah. Junk 2.0. <laughs> okay. Enthusiasm. The Hadsells, Dominic Bowden, Melissa Nielsen, Don. Hi, Don. <laughs> Eugene T. Hi, Eugene. Connor Reynolds, Pruitt Holcomb. Hi. <laughs> Do you think the people who you don't say hi to personally now feel left out? I hope not, because sometimes their like usernames are different from their real names, and so I don't know which like who they are. They could be somebody I know, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's always the, that's always the fear. Artemis BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Bristol. Yeah, they kick people over there. Good. <laughs> Got him. Francois Or the fifth. Oh, that too. I say, I think I say V, but you never know. Tashanus? <laughs> you said that with such a serious trepidation. I think shyness. Shyness. Dennis Pancake Detlefsen. Ripdoor Stormwolf. Miko from Finland. Know where he's from. <laughs> we doxed him. <laughs> Dennis Bengtsson. Josh Moger? I think I say Mosier. Mosier? You could be right, though. Indigo Vandane? Or Vandane. Vandane sounds fun, though. It does sound fun. Allison Ansel. Sydney Marsing. Just the Jester. Savarden. Oh, the last one. Hi, Savarden. I know you, but I don't know how to say your last name. Akrosimova? I mean, what's the worst that ha- could happen if you messed it up? You just lose their respect forever. No, I'm sorry. <sighs> Brady Warner, Kitty Foe, <laughs> James Neely, Marissa Donaldson, Melanie Joe, Alana Seawolf, Toby Gleason Stack, Ruby Opfer, Matthew Weber. Also, there's like too many people I recognize now, so I'm <laughs> just everyone high. Now it's just like I'm just scrolling through Twitter now. Yeah. Oh, where did I stop off at? Matthew Weber, Sarah Hanley, Melissa Booker, Cameron Abbas, Dylan, Jiri Sayon? I could be. I say Gary Sayon, but... Gary is a real name, too. Yeah. Uh, Anna Stolfarer, Sean, the host of Funk Dunk Plays, Harrison Andrew, Kevin Sizidlo? Sizidlo? I say Sidlow. Sidlow. Christoph Charlow? Charlotte. It's Christopher. I don't know why they are cut off there on the, oh, the version well, you hi, have. Hi, Christopher. You're not just Christoph. You could be, though. That's pretty. It's a pretty baller name. Yeah, Christoph Waltz. Oh, I like him. Yeah, he's good. Jorrit, Viger Arnstein, Cody Jackson, 
August Rue. <laughs> August Rue. And then is it Augusta? Could be August. Could be August. Could be Augustus Gloop. I'm thinking about chocolate now. Yeah. Very hungry. I'm so hungry. Exteloris, Luke Powers, Hedron Master. Is that a Magic the Gathering reference? Because Hedrons are like the big three-dimensional diamond things on Zendikar. I would not know. I was really counting on you to come through. You know who doesn't know? It's me. <laughs> uh, Michael Hall, Athos, Ingemar Gr- Grimaun? Gr- Grimaun? So you did it. Oh my god, I did it. I'm sorry I ruined everybody's names. I'm so sorry. No, it's exciting. It only took 10 minutes, so that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say to the people for the end of the season? Like, it was pretty exciting that we got to do it, and it's only because of all the people whose names you just said, because your computer broke and my computer broke. Also, like, people have, like, sent me money on PayPal to help me, like, pay my rent, and that's, like, really fucking cool, and, like, you guys don't have to do that, and I really appreciate it, so, like... I don't know how to get in contact with you guys because PayPal doesn't like give me your info. But like, thank you, everyone. I'm sure we'll be promoting ourselves at the beginning of the next season as we do every time we start a whole new adventure. Yes. But this is also a good opportune moment to just remind everyone that it's an incredible privilege to be able to do this at all and that everyone enjoys it is super awesome. Uh, I'm sure everyone else involved in the show would agree if... They were here. They have important things to do, but you can always find Chris at uh, Weekly Manga Recap, patreon.com slash weekly manga recap. Who else is on our show? Laura K. Buzz, everywhere. Can't forget. Can't forget. She's on kotaku.co.uk, which is different from the regular Kotaku. It's it's very British. I would hope so. Who else is on our thing? Sketch? He does music. Yeah. He's a fancy boy. Fancy lad. Very fancy. And then there's you, and then there's me. Yeah, I think that's everybody. Yeah, so hit up our socials and everything. Patreon.com slash Austin Yorsky is how you make sure the show continues and that Lauren and I aren't homeless. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) It's real nice not being homeless. It's very nice. It's just like... Very good. It's everything. Also, we got you headphones. We got Jess a mic in season one. Uh, I got me a mic. You got a mic. Uh, Leon got headphones. All that stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, I can't believe y'all want to, like, listen to my dumb ass. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very flattering. I think um, I think that's all the stuff. I mean, you should subscribe on, like, iTunes and Podbean, Google Play, and all that stuff I say every week. And I have someone here to bounce it off of, so I don't feel like such a shill. Just be like, please subscribe and comment and rate. You should do all those things because do them. then when other people find the show, they see it has a bunch of those things. And they're like, well, these people clearly have already conned some people into listening. <laughs> they know what they're doing, maybe. Yeah. And also al- algorithms are involved somehow. I don't know how. No one does, but. Someone does. Someone does. So you should do all those things. This is the first time I've ever done like an experimental two-person outro. I hope it wasn't too terrible to listen to, but I'm glad I had company this time. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, guys. It's me. Here I am. So season four is going to be exciting. Yeah, it's going to be me. It's going to be Meowvalis. 